So if you follow Faded Out on Facebook, you likely saw my announcement last weekend saying that I had a huge technical glitch with this episode. I had a very important interview, and important is kind of an understatement because this is actually an eyewitness account that had never been shared before. This is the kind of thing that will change the whole Johnny Gosh case altogether. The glitch resulted in losing the audio and we had to do the interview all over again. And you can imagine my devastation when I realized what happened and that the episode would have to be delayed. However, we were able to reschedule and re-record the interview and I will be sharing that with you today. I got a huge piece of information since my last episode, so let me set the scene for you. It was Monday night, June 18th. I had just laid down in bed. I always go to bed early on weeknights because I get up extremely early for work. I slept briefly, but then woke up again. So as most people do in that situation, I reached over to the nightstand and I grabbed my phone. And there was a brand new email from a guy named Chris Burge. The email read, I saw Johnny Gosh five minutes before he was kidnapped. I was a paperboy. I lived on Marcourt Lane in West Des Moines in 1982. I have to say a lot of your facts are wrong. The movie does not get it right. It does not talk to any people I know who saw Johnny that Sunday morning. I have spoke with the other witnesses and none of your or the movie's facts are corroborated. Who is this mysterious paperboy Mike? Does he have a last name? John Rizzo, he means John Rossi, is unknown to me and anyone I grew up with living in our neighborhood. My dad did not know him. So, in my grogginess, my first thought is, oh, okay, I'll respond in the morning. But then after a few seconds, that initial feeling evolved into, wait, what? I didn't respond right away. I did wait until the next morning. I wanted to make sure my thoughts were all in order before I continued. What I found out was that an integral part of what we've universally believed as one of the very few facts that we have from that morning of September 5th, 1982, has been wrong this whole time. Johnny did not walk down the streets that all the reports have said he walked down after all these years. The police report got it wrong. And that set the precedent for every report beyond that to get it wrong too. And that's including the documentary, Who Took Johnny? And how do I know this? Because an eyewitness who saw Johnny walk past his driveway that morning told me that himself. So we emailed back and forth quite a bit all through the next day, the contents of which I will share with you in a minute. And then that Thursday night, I spoke to him for almost an hour on the phone. That was the ill-fated phone call. We spoke again a few nights ago, and that's what today's episode is about. I'm going to break away from my usual format again, where I have two segments with a 30 second or minute long break in the middle, because this episode will be longer than normal, and I don't want to take up extra time. This is a witness account in the Johnny Gosh case that has never been shared before. It's too pivotal to gloss over or to drag out. So with that said, this is episode 16 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. So before I jump right into my phone call with Chris Burge, I think I should give you a refresher on the geography of Johnny's neighborhood and the route that it was always reported that he walked that morning. Imagine this as a bird's eye view. This is exactly what you would see if you looked it up on Google Maps. So at the bottom, south, you have Ashworth Road that goes across. It's a main thoroughfare. 
42nd Street is another main drag that is perpendicular to Ashworth and it runs up north. Intersecting with 42nd Street and parallel to Ashworth, you have Marcourt Lane. Now off of Marcourt Lane, running south again in the direction of Ashworth, you have 45th Street, the cul-de-sac that Johnny lived on. So you can visualize that little block right there. Right in the middle of that block is Valley United Methodist Church and the churchyard, and it's also surrounded by houses. So the story has always been that Johnny left his house that morning with his wagon and his little mini dachshund Gretchen, and they cut through the backyard on 45th Street. A neighbor reported hearing rustling in his backyard that morning and identified it as Johnny cutting through. And then they walked through the churchyard up to Ashworth Road. At this point, as Johnny gets to Ashworth, the blue Ford Fairmont pulls up to him for the first time, asking for directions. Johnny continues east, headed to pick up his papers at 42nd and Ashworth. At that point, the man in the blue Ford Fairmont flicks the dome light in the car twice to signal another man. Johnny begins walking down 42nd Street towards Marcourt. At that point, a man comes out from between two houses on 42nd Street and follows Johnny down the sidewalk. Johnny turns onto Marcourt Lane, and at that point, the blue Ford Fairmont reappears. The man approaches Johnny, and he is pulled into the car. Car, which then runs the stop sign at 42nd and Marcor and heads north. That's always been the story as we know it. So let me give you some context for what Chris and I talk about by sharing just a few of the emails in our exchange. So on Tuesday morning, I responded back to him saying, Hi Chris, do you mean John Rossi? He lived up at the corner of Ashworth and 42nd Street, where the newspaper pickup spot was located. He's interviewed in the movie and talks about seeing the Ford Fairmont. Mike is Mike Seskis, the paperboy who was up at the corner collecting his papers after Johnny was first approached by the Ford Fairmont. He's mentioned in the initial police report. I'm really glad you reached out to me because I would love to hear from a first-hand witness. I have a lot of questions for you, if that's okay. Where specifically did you see Johnny? As in what streets were you each on and at what time? Did you see the blue Ford Fairmont or anyone inside of it? Was that the only car? Did you see any of the actual abduction at 42nd and Marcourt? How much of my podcast have you listened to? I ask because in my recent three episodes, 13, 14, and 15, I talk about how it's all starting to seem to me like this whole thing was because of a much more local pedophile ring with connections to the Des Moines Register. Did you know Wilbur Millhouse? He was a circulation manager in West Des Moines, but was transferred to a district on the east side of town shortly before Johnny was kidnapped. I was emailing back and forth with a guy, Yellowbag, who was a paperboy, on the east side of town, and he deeply believes that Wilbur Millhouse was involved because he would make comments after the fact like nothing would have happened to him if he had just kept his mouth shut. Yellowbag also believes that Johnny was probably killed shortly after he was kidnapped. He mentioned too that Millhouse lived in an area known as the Bottoms, and that it was a lot of woods and a pond, and probably a good place to bury a body. After Milhouse was arrested for sex abuse, it was discovered that he had the names and addresses of 2,200 boys in his possession. Also, did you know Frank Sakura? Chris responds, I personally knew Johnny Gosh. He was two years older than me. He was my older brother's age, and they were friends, kinda. He lived down the street from me. I saw him almost every day growing up and every day when I walked home from Crossroads School. Just recently, my family and I were looking through old photos. I found one of my older brother's birthday party, and Johnny was in the photo. Johnny stayed the night at our house for my brother's birthday because in the morning we went to Adventureland. Johnny got sick, and his dad picked him up. As for your facts, this reminds me of the Iraq war where the U.S. would use facts, in quotes, they got from one source and verified by another source when they were all the same source and that source was wrong in the first place. I am not knocking you, though I have to laugh at your description of life as a kid in Des Moines, Iowa in the 1980s. 
we did not play in cornfields. We hung out at Valley West Mall, specifically the Fun Factory. That was the nearest arcade. I was 10 in 1982. I would ride my bike to Valley West Mall and leave my bike there unlocked all day. So did every other kid. You knew who was at the mall by whose bike was at the rack. But back to facts. No one I know knows or ever knew John Rossi. Not my dad, my neighbors, my friends. No one I know knows or ever knew Mike Seskis. Not my dad, my brother, my neighbors, my friends. I don't believe he attended Crossroads Elementary School. I spoke with Kevin Bozen about that morning. Kevin and his brother Mark are the paperboys described by the police officer in the documentary. The documentary director talked to Kevin also. Kevin told the director exactly what I said. That is why they did not interview him or my Self. What we said and saw. Kevin Bozen and I saw Johnny walking up Marcourt Lane to get his papers at 42nd and Marcourt. That's in all caps. He never made it to Ashworth Road. The movie and the police report are wrong. Johnny's path was not cutting through the churchyard. That would be uphill, then a steep downhill in grass to pull a cart. I would not have done it the hardest way possible. Plus, again, this is in all caps, I saw Johnny goshed that morning walking up Marcourt Lane. But, Someone thinks they heard a wagon being pulled outside their house and automatically it was Johnny Unseen. I saw Johnny Gosh that Sunday morning. He was pulling his car up Marcourt Lane to the corner where he picked up his papers, 42nd and Marcourt. I was leaving for my paper route. My dad was driving in the car. We were reversing out of our garage at 4204 Marcourt Lane when I said, Dad, stop, Johnny is crossing our driveway. We waited for Johnny to clear our driveway and we backed out. I last saw Johnny exactly where his his cart was found. He was heading east up Marcourt Lane towards 42nd Street. He was technically on our property when he was taken. As we passed Johnny, I saw Kevin and Mark Bozen at the southwest corner of 42nd and Marcourt heading south. The Bozens headed to Ashworth and 42nd. Johnny picked up his papers at Marcourt and 42nd. The Bozens picked up theirs at 42nd and Ashworth. I went to do my paper route. When we returned, I saw Johnny's cart right there where we last saw him. The cart was now facing west, and the papers were still in their original brown paper wrapping. Don't know anything or heard anything about the Bottoms, Wilbur Millhouse, Frank Sikora. There was no guy in a car, no guy running between houses. PJ Smith, my neighbor, says he saw a car. That is the only report of a car. John Rossi is making the other stuff up, in my opinion. So at this point, I forwarded the exchange so far onto another listener who is very well-versed in the Johnny Gosh case, just to gauge his thoughts on it. He read through our emails, and he actually looked up Chris Burge. Sure enough, the house that Chris described was the Burge residence at the time, and it was the house that Johnny's wagon was found in front of. So I am just floored, as you can imagine. But before I get to our phone call, let me give you a little more context. In one of the following emails, Chris mentioned a guy by the name of Fred who worked at the mall. And basically, Fred was just a guy who seemed kind of weird at the time. He would offer the boys that hung out at the mall things like money to go to the movies. And then it was later found out that he had some boys living at his place. And so Fred was basically just a guy who seemed like a creep at the time. And eventually this guy Fred was arrested and Chris never saw him again. But for now, I won't keep you waiting a minute longer. Here is my phone conversation with Chris Birch, who was 10 years old at the time of Johnny's disappearance and saw Johnny just a few minutes before he vanished. Hi, this is Chris. Hi, how are you? I'm phenomenal, how are you? I'm good, uh, thank you for calling me back. I really appreciate that. Um, yes. Yeah, I'm sorry about this whole inconvenience. Like, um, 
I think uh, the call recorder that I had downloaded on my phone, it was an outdated version, and I didn't know that. And when I went to play it back, it had only recorded my voice. So, uh, yeah, that, that kind of sucked. So if you could recount to me again your day on um, September 5th, 1982. Yeah, I lived at 4204 Marcor Lane. So I woke up and I got ready to go do my Sunday morning paper route with my dad and my older brother. And my dad always drove us in the car to get our papers and then on our route. So we were getting in the car, we were backing out of our house, which is on the south side of Marcor Lane. And in front of our house, going east up Marcor Lane was Johnny Josh pulling his uh, wagon up to the corner of Marcor and 42nd to pick up his papers. And I said, Dad, stop. Johnny's crossing. So we waited a second. We let Johnny cross on the sidewalk across our driveway. We pulled out and then we drove in the same direction that Johnny was going east toward the corner of 42nd Marcourt. We took a left, headed north up to get our papers. Johnny, I believe, stopped at that corner, picked up his papers, turned around and walked back to pretty much our property right basically before he got to our driveway was where his wagon was when we got back, we went and did our route. When we returned, we pulled in, saw Johnny's wagon there, so I ran out. I ran up to it, I looked in it, I saw all his papers that were still bound in the brown paper wrapping. Mm-hmm. And then I went, I went up and I told my dad, I said, Dad, Johnny's wagon's still there, and his papers are in there. Kind of looked at it and looked around, and then we, I think we had some stuff that we carried inside. And then I kind of went about my day until, I don't know how long it was later, but there was a police officer that was parked in the middle of Markport Lane, and he was there for about four hours. And that's when he knew something was kind of up, when he just was out there sitting. So I kind of, after a while, I went out and started playing basketball, and the neighbor across the street who lived next to John Smith, Mr. Cooper, he went out and he came over. The, the police officer was heading down, headed west on Marcourt. He just sat there, but he came over to our side of the street and asked the police officer through the window, you know, what's going on? And the police officer said, we think there's been a kidnapping. We're pretty sure it's a kidnapping. And that's when I heard the word kidnapping for the first time. And I was I was just like, what? That doesn't, that yeah. doesn't happen here. That's something you hear about. They tell you be careful about kids get kidnapped, but that's not something that. Yeah, like that's right? not something that really happens. Like, right. Especially. That's, that's, yeah. In West Des Moines, Iowa, in yeah. California, whatever. But. Okay, so, so that was always one of the discrepancies I think in the movie and in the police report is that um, they always said that just there was one pickup spot for the newspapers and that it was at Ashworth and 42nd. And they always said that Johnny, um, he lived on 45th street, which is a cul-de-sac. And they say that he cut through his backyard, through the churchyard up to Ashworth. And then he, from there, he walked 
all the way to the corner and he kind of walked around all the way around so you're saying he didn't do that at all he kind of went the total opposite way well one thing i forgot to say was um as my dad and my brother and i as we pulled up to the corner of 42nd to turn left kevin bozen and his brother were coming from their house which was they lived on the, the street over which was a cul-de-sac too to the north so they were coming south along 42nd street so they had and i saw them they had passed marcourt and were on the southwest corner of marcourt and 42nd going to ashworth to pick up their papers as they as we, we turned and that's when we they saw johnny as well so we saw kevin bozen and mark bozen at that corner right after we had just passed johnny gosh okay so, so I had, I had, you know, I've talked to Kevin since then, and he's confirmed, you know, my, my recollection and his recollection that we saw Johnny on Marcourt in front of my house, you know, that morning. Okay. So, I, you know, I don't know what their path is, but and just looking at it is, doesn't make sense to me because if you know the area, there's... It's kind of it's kind of a hilly area. Marcourt's a hill, so he, from his house you'd be going through a yard up a hill, and then there's kind of an empty creek bed back there, so you'd go down into the creek bed, back up the other creek bed, through the churchyard, which is all grass. Now, Ashworth kind of climbs up there, so there's kind of at certain parts it's, there's a steep ridge that falls off from the churchyard, so I wouldn't want to be pulling a wagon with anything in. You know, just me. It'd be easier to pull it up the street on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. So that's a. I saw Johnny somewhere else that morning, and B. It just doesn't make sense to me to uh, to go that way at all. Okay. And um, my next question was, um, you didn't see his dog with him that morning, because that's part of the official story too, is that he had his little mini dachshund with him that morning, but you didn't see, nobody saw a dog? I don't recall seeing the dog with him as he came up Marcourt Lane when we were backing out. It was very early, but when uh, we came back, it was just the wagon. Okay. I just saw a wagon. I mean, I don't remember any dog at that time, whether he had left or whoever there. I don't, I don't remember that. Okay, and I think um, one thing with uh, the official story, too, that is that they've always said that there was one pickup spot and that it was at Ashworth and 42nd, but there wasn't just one? How, how many pickup spots were there? I mean, I would imagine there'd be multiple. I mean, you just, there was some guy who drove around in a truck that just would pull up the corners and he would drop off one or two or three routes because at my corner, which was on the corner of 42nd and Woodland Avenue, I think, was uh, maybe three or four routes and you had to make sure you got the right route with the right number of papers and so okay. I just remember you had brown wrapping on it with your route number on it. And do you know that Johnny's uh, pickup spot wasn't at 42nd and Ashworth? It, it was at 42nd and Marcourt? I remember that because I remember when my dad first said, you know, we got to go pick up the papers. I ran up to the corner at 42nd, which was right there, and I grabbed the papers, and he was like, no, those aren't ours. Those are Johnny's. And I was incredulous. I was like, why does, why does Johnny get to do our house? You know, what? 
So uh, we had to do the apartments up the street. Okay. And um, you had sent me a, a sort of a little video sort of showing where your route was, where the Bozin's route was. So you guys were both on um, 42nd Street. At any point, did you see a, a blue Ford Fairmont blow through the stop sign at 42nd and Marcourt? I didn't see a car, and I don't recall seeing any cars blowing through a stop sign or seeing any cars at all. And apparently they came left down towards us, so we would have been probably there getting our papers ready. And we don't recall, I don't recall seeing anything. Okay. And another thing I wanted to um, talk about, too, is did the police question you after this happened? Like, asked you where you saw Johnny or anything like that? Since I talked to you, I talked to my dad about that. Okay. Just to get some clarification. So I recall one day I was in school and my mom came outside my classroom and started motioning me to come out, which kind of made me nervous. And so when I came out there, she was there with a man in a suit and he asked me questions. I thought he was FBI. My dad uh, just talked to him recently. He said that he remembers that we talked to the state investigators, which I don't know exactly uh, what, what that means, but he said it was somebody from the state. So, uh, but he, he came out to my school, he talked to me, and it was very brief. I just kind of stood there in the in the hallway, and he said, do you remember seeing anything unusual that morning? And I, I thought, I mean, I didn't, well, well I, you know, I didn't, didn't remember anything unusual. And he's like, and I think he maybe asked if I saw a car, and I was like, no, I don't, I don't recall seeing a car. And I think that was kind of about it. But I don't remember any asking me, you know, tell me exactly what happened that day or where were you or did you see Johnny or anything like that? It was was kind of, did you see anything unusual? I don't know if my mom had told him anything prior to that. So, so, so he had asked you, the only thing he asked you was if you saw anything unusual and you saw Johnny um, walking on Marcourt Lane towards 42nd Street and to you that wasn't unusual though that would be the route Johnny would always take to go and get his papers yeah that was totally I mean yeah there's nothing wrong seeing Johnny going up to the corner to get his papers okay so and that was the thing when I got that first email from you that was the thing that really kind of shook me is because um, it really what that means is that the police report is wrong and the movie is wrong and um, basically it's all wrong because every report says that Johnny went up through his backyard, up through the grass, um, onto Ashworth, and that's supposedly where he saw first saw the Ford Fairmont and then he walked down Ashworth towards 42nd, picked up his papers, walked down 42nd, and then turned the corner onto Marquardt Lane. But you saw him physically do the exact opposite. He, You lived on Marquardt Lane. You, cr- you saw him cross in front of your driveway in the other direction. So that's basically, basically he went the exact opposite way from that. Well, I mean, he was going east in both ways, right? He was, he yeah. just didn't, you know, he was going to different points at Marcourt or Ashworth on 42nd Street. But, yeah, I mean, I called the director. I said, hey, this is what I saw. 
And I, you know, I, my friend Kevin Bozen said they contacted him and he said exactly what I said and that they were wrong. And the director didn't really, he just said, yeah, I'm following the police report. You know, that was right. his thing. So his justification was, well, they're just reading the police report is basically what they're doing. And I was like, okay, well, it's, it's wrong. And I don't know who John Rossi is. And my dad doesn't know who John Rossi is. And I've read articles about him and his son, and I don't know who his son is, and I don't know who Mike Seth or any, you know, any of the other witnesses in police report. I know four other people who saw Johnny Gosh that day on the corner of, you know, Mark Gordon 42nd. Me, my brother, my dad, Kevin, and Mark Bozen. And they don't know who, or Kevin Bozen says he doesn't know who John Rossi is, and... Yeah, John Rossi, is, I, I guess he lived at the corner, the house right at the corner that had that sort of um, turnaround driveway right in front at 42nd and Ashworth, right up at the corner right. there where the pickup spot was. Well, then he lived next to Jason Bell, who was my friend, so I don't ever recall, you know, recall that there was another boy who lived next door to Jason Bell. Okay. Because um, Jason Bell lived one... You know, that's you have the church, then you have whatever John Rossi's house, and then Jason Bell lived next to him. So I would always go by that house. So I don't know. And then that whole scenario, Kevin, they have them going on the other side of the street, walking over there to get it on the opposite, not the church corner, but the other corner. But there's no sidewalk there. So why would you walk in the middle of the street? down that area that car's turned there i mean that's like a dangerous you wouldn't you would you would stay on the sidewalk and then cross up there so they have them crossing in the middle of 42nd to cross over to a corner they have a guy coming out of bushes where there's no bushes um the whole i don't i i just have a real problem with you know where the stuff happens doesn't make any sense so and uh, really bushes guys coming out of bushes yeah, because supposedly, because yeah, supposedly the the man who came out from between two houses, he was supposedly right in between um, John Rossi's house and the next house, right next to him on Forty Second Street, and that's supposedly the that's the two houses that he came yeah. out from between. And back then there was John Rossi's fence if it was his house, and then there was nothing. There was a hill that went up to these people's backyard, and they those that house had a driveway that accessed and it was one of the only it was the only house on the street that had a driveway that accessed 42nd their house faced belmar on the other side but then so i would always cut through that yard down that driveway to my house when i went to my friend john haynes's house who lived up on belmar so what about pj smith who supposedly said that he heard a, I think he said he heard a car door slam and there's like there's some conflicting reports with that there's also reports that say he heard like you know tire screech or and he saw the car blow through the stop sign and there's also reports that some people saw Johnny kind of like sitting on his wagon like slumped over or something do you have any thoughts on what happened at that moment what happened the moment somebody drove up to him and like whether he was coerced into the car or I know that Noreen has said a few times that she thinks that he was shot with a taser or something like that. Um, well, the PJ Smith thing, um, I mean, I knew PJ, he was, he's like a couple years older than my brother. So he's like four years older than me. So I didn't know him really well, but I mean, I don't know if a car door slamming would be enough to wake him up, but maybe he saw something. Maybe I don't, 
I, you know, I, obviously eyewitness accounts don't seem to amount for much in this. I was looking on that Wikipedia, and I, it says that John Rossi's son, Mike, saw the car from his window, which is out of a Dubuque paper from something. So, you know, I don't really know what the facts are and what John, you know, what PJ saw. He could have heard us leaving, for all I know. You know, but um, when I came back, as for, you know, how they got Johnny, mm-hmm. when I came back, the car was just there. It's not like he was pulling his cart and then somebody pulled up and he kind of was going to just pull over and continue with what he was doing. He stopped, left the cart as it was with the handle up, I think, and then he walked, to me, he walked over to the car. So whatever they did, they got him to stop and coerced him away from the wagon, over, probably bent over in the car. I mean, if you read how... Ted Bundy operated, he would get crutches and books and, you know, and they pick their spot. He would pick colleges, you know, the Green River Killer liked to go early, tell his wife he was working and tell everybody he was somewhere else and go get prostitutes in his van and he could get him in there and do what he want. you know. Once they, they've had to get him in the car and then do something to him to get him to, to get control of him, Bundy would hit him over the head with something. Gacy would get him drunk and with drugs until they you know couldn't stand up so i don't i don't know they probably had to do something probably hit him over the head i mean johnny was yeah he was he was a bigger kid he was you know yeah, he's he wasn't like five husky. seven or something like I, i'm i'm 33 and five seven that's that's bigger than me so yeah i mean i forgot what i mean but he had a you know he had a big belly he carried a lot of weight so you know he, i could that was little i could run faster than him because he was heavier you know, he couldn't, I could, I'd call him names and then I'd run away because he couldn't catch me. And, you know, it wasn't kind of that fun because there wasn't any, he couldn't catch me. And if he did catch me, he was, he was, you know, I don't think he would have really beat me up. He wasn't that kind of guy. So the other thing too is um, Yellow Bag and I were talking about, uh, we were emailing each other back and forth. He really thinks that Johnny got into the car willfully. And uh, maybe at that point, somebody you know, jumped up from the back or like, you know, strangled him or something like that, did something to knock him out. And that's where it becomes sort of, I wonder about Paul Benassi's whole story because, you know, Johnny being a bigger kid and Paul Benassi being kind of a smaller, wiry kind of a guy, um, I feel like, well, I mean, you've seen him in person, seen Johnny in person. I mean, does it, do you think that he could have fought off somebody like that, especially when you're fighting for your life, you know? Yeah, I don't, I don't think he, they would have had to do something to him. I mean, yeah. I don't know, you, you had to incapacitate him and, and stop the struggle. Because, yeah, I mean, if, if he would have tried to fight or put his weight into it, he would have been a hard, I mean, he was probably 140 or something. So okay. he'd have to be a man and have to be, so I would think, maybe two people I don't know and I wanted to ask too and we talked about this the last time what was Johnny like just as a person I mean I feel like I've been doing this for so long and researching the case like what 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 kind of kid was he yeah I know I've done a documentary before with people and you see so much of him you're like wow yeah right Johnny was my older brother's friend he was two years older so when we were younger uh I seem to, you know, there was more interaction with Johnny. I recently, my dad was in town, he brought some pictures, and I found a 
photograph for my brother's birthday at Shaggy's Pizza, and you're like, look, there's Johnny Gosh. It was, he was in the photo. It was kind of eerie, but yeah. and we used to we used to do birthday parties and stuff, and I think he had his dad had a go kart maybe or something. But we'd go down there. I remember he had a pool table in the basement. And I just remember they had a picture of dogs playing pool. Mm-hmm. But one time he stayed at our house for my brother's birthday, and we, he was came over late because he was wasn't feeling good and we went out to Adventureland the next day and I think he got he got sick on a ride like right away and his dad picked him up and then as he got older I think my brother kind of Johnny maybe he's a little bit slower a little bit bigger and maybe my brother picked on him and so Noreen was really protective of him and um, I think she didn't really like my older brother too much so kind of trickled down to me one time I walked home and they had David Starr and Johnny had made a fort back in that area behind David Starr's house. Kind of was a big pond back there, area on the way to school. And I went in there to check it out. And then by the, by the time I got up the street, home, Noreen was on the phone with my mom screaming, saying I peed in it and destroyed it. And, and then my mom was like, just leave Johnny alone. It's, no, it really wasn't about Johnny. It was more about just Noreen and and her and you know, the reaction you got and it was always something from Noreen all the sort of stories that have come about regarding Johnny over the past 36 years now um, you think that like the whole thing with pedophile rings and Paul Benassi and all the stories that's just that's just um, not true you think it was just um, it was some somebody very local and uh, he, he I think you told me you told me you think he was probably killed that day, right? Yeah, I mean, I just think how that's that's how they operate. I don't think you can really take somebody like that and control them and just have them free. And you gotta you, you control them and you do what you want with them, and then then you kill them. I mean, it just seems that's the mo of of people who kidnap and kill people. And then, you know, in the movie, there's two girls, and they were found later that day or a couple of weeks later you know they found their bodies and, yeah. yeah I don't think I don't think he lived very long none of them you know if you read about any of the people who kill and kidnap people and take them and you know pedophiles it probably wasn't taken by a pedophile uh, I think it's just one I don't think people you know pedophiles really roll in gangs so to have something like that organized seems really uh, you know hard to kind of comprehend uh, it could happen but, yeah. you know, but I just I, think, you know, usually the majority of them operate solo. Yeah. They keep it, it's a hidden thing from what seems like what, you know, I read the thing where they were looking for the Green River Killer, so the guy would interview Bundy, and he got Bundy to talk about how, you know, the urge in him would grow and grow and grow until he just couldn't deny it, and then he would act out, he would get a girl, he liked necrophilia, you know, and then he'd, he'd like, fall asleep, and when he woke up next to a day, he was just horrified. He couldn't believe what he'd done and how he had gotten into such a state and I think that with people like this they get this urge that builds he probably got Johnny he satisfied it and I you know I would think it's the same guy who went after Eugene Martin I know the police say it's not connected and I could see maybe how they could say that but to me it's a little too scary it did it it worked once so he went back and did it again well I'm I'm wondering too like especially if it seems like Johnny got into the car willfully. Um, could it have been somebody he knew? Like I'm wondering, 
something I've really been wondering lately is if it could have been somebody at the Des Moines Register. Like, I, um, I had mentioned somebody to you who was a circulation manager. His name was Wilbur Milhouse. And um, there was another guy at the Des Moines Register who was convicted of um, sex abuse uh, named Frank Sikora. So I'm wondering if it was somebody at the register. I mean, whether it was somebody new, I either have to, it's got to be somebody like that to get somebody trusted to come over, or you got to have some good ploy to get them away and get them unsuspectingly to help you carry something or to whatever so that they have their own. And so I don't know, but that would be a good explanation for it if, you know, because he was just gone. There was no clues. There was no nothing. The, the car was just there, and it was just, he was gone. Yeah. That, that's the, so, eerie, the eerie thing is that, um, you were even saying this, is that the cart, the wagon did not look disrupted or anything. I mean, the it didn't look like there was any sign of a struggle. Um, right, and to me, if a, if a guy had pulled up, was kind of like pulling up in a car saying, hey, where's this? I would be kind of pulling my cart, like, hey, at the direction I was going towards and even down my driveway towards the street kind of to get a little closer to kind of yell at the guy because I'm not going to stop what I'm doing and walk over to him. You know, so he, if it was just directions, I don't think that would be enough to get me to get away from my cart. I would be pulling my wagon and, you know, kind of pulling it towards him and then pulling it back towards the sidewalk where I needed to go. But it was just stopped in the middle, perfectly square in the middle of the, of the sidewalk. Yeah. And... I mean, yeah. you were really the first person to find his wagon, I guess, then. And you said also, too, that he hadn't even finished, like, unwrapping the papers or anything. Like, the papers were... I, 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 I don't really know how it works. I, I've never had a paper route, but there was, like, a brown wrapping that he hadn't taken off or something. Yeah, they were, like, stacked flat and uh -huh. square. And at some point in time, initially when I got to having the paper route, having a paper route wasn't all the, the capitalistic entrepreneur great thing that they, they make. It was like, it was, it was kind of a hassle to stop your day. Initially, you had the afternoon paper, so you had to stop your day and go deliver the paper like at three or four, which wasn't any fun all summer long. And then on Sundays, you had to get up early. And Iowa can be really cold, yeah. really icy and freezing. So it wasn't always so great. And at some point in time, and I don't remember if it was this, but I think it was later where we actually had to take the, each paper and fold it and put it into a plastic bag so it wouldn't get wet. So you went up there and they were covered in, in paper and he just put them in there and it didn't even look like he had unwrapped them, like he hadn't delivered one paper yet. Yeah. So it looked like he had gone, we had passed him, he went up to the corner, put him, he had maybe two stacks of papers, and he put them in his wagon, turned around and walked back, and he didn't make it, you know, to our driveway. And really that would be the reason why his cart was pointed in the direction of going up Marcor. It's not because he walked down 42nd Street and turned the corner, it's because uh, he had walked down Marcourt towards 42nd, picked up his papers, had turned around and was walking back. Like, that, that yeah. would make more sense? Well, when you go from Johnny's house to my house, you know, it's uh, it's up a hill. Okay. So Marcourt Lane's kind of, and I mean, to me, it was a steep hill on your bike. It was, 
they kind of get huffing. And in the wintertime when it froze over, I remember cars just, you know, turning onto our street and just sliding all the way down to the bottom. Okay. So it was kind of, it was, it was a hill. So he would come up, uh, come up Marquardt, and then he'd go back down, and he kind of lived. He'd go down, and then at the bottom of the hill, and if you saw on the thing, that I hung out with Nathan Lundeen, but who was the other Lundeen guy that was Johnny's friend? Um, Aaron? Aaron Lundeen, yeah. So they lived on the corner of Marcourt, and they didn't live on, they, their, corner, their house was on the corner of Marcourt, but they lived on 42nd, or 45th. They lived on whatever street Johnny lived on. Okay. So they lived next to the, our Shambos, and then there was somebody else, and then Johnny lived up. And that was actually, you went down Marcourt, and then you went up a little hill to get to their circle. It's so, kind of, you can't see it on Google Maps, but it's very, kind of, there's a lot of drops in elevation. Okay. Although I was very flat. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. Like, with the when you look at the bird's eye view, everything looks flat. So it just, it doesn't look like it's really much to... The, the route that everybody seems to think that Johnny took to walk through up the backyard, up the churchyard, up to Ashworth, all the way around. Um, from a bird's eye view, it doesn't look that bad, but I guess based on what you're telling me, that that would be virtually impossible and also make no sense to do it. Um, yeah, not virtually impossible, but it's just... I, I know the, the terrain, uh, you know, for me it was all based on access on a bicycle. So I know going through the churchyard at one point where it went on Ashworth, there was kind of, it sloped down and then that sloping down, it, you know, it went to a hill. It kind of was like a mesa that sloped down as the area. So there were certain parts that he wouldn't want to pull that wagon down. It would like just fly down and hit you in the back of the ankles. It's a little short, very short, very steep kind of little embankment there that goes along Ashworth. So you would best bet to avoid the, you know, to get your thing down where the embankment wasn't that steep. You'd have to keep pulling it all the way through the churchyard more towards, as you got closer to 42nd. Okay. Yeah. And that I, church was actually on a hill, and then there was the, the whole parking lot. It's just a big, long slope, too. The, the most shocking thing to this for me is... Um, that nobody saw a car speeding or anything. Supposedly a car blew through the stop sign at 42nd and Marcourt, but nobody saw that happen. I don't know who would have been there to see that happen. I mean, unless, you know, PJ saw it from a window. Apparently, you know, he heard something suspicious, which, okay, sure, maybe he got up and looked out his window, but, you know, I just find that odd. You would notice something and then, you know, because I, I don't know, maybe, you know, after we heard when he was speaking, that's when I, you know, I remembered exactly. I was like, wait a second. Kevin, I, I, we saw Johnny at the corner, right? He's like, yeah, that's what happened. Okay. I was like, so, and there was, for me, that's just what I, it wasn't until this documentary came out that I was like, oh, I didn't realize the police had it so wrong. Oh, okay. So what's that like to like, to know that you actually saw it and everybody else including the police report has had it wrong for all these years what's that realization like to realize that something is that wrong well you want to tell somebody that's why i emailed you and that's why i called the director of the documentary and you know it's like i don't know if you want the truth or if you want you know what what, what you want to believe i want the truth so my my intention is to find what happened to him so 
Uh, right, right. But it's just like, I, you know, so I, yeah, I figured, you know, your thing seemed to get more, uh, more interested in, in finding out what happened than just trying to, to tell a good story, which, which I think that's, you know, Noreen, I mean, I would never want to be in her position. And, you know, I, I can kind of understand not wanting to accept the fact that my son's dead and you know i mean she has kept up hope and she has believed in every last straw and she keeps looking for i mean and it gets crazier and crazier in the photographs that's not johnny in the photographs and i uh, she he didn't come to see her and you know and it always seems around every anniversary in the papers there's always something that noreen's doing yeah. around september 5th but i mean i you know yeah. I, I, I don't know. I guess you got to accept the truth or something. Yeah. I don't know if it's better to, to propagate this kind of stuff and live in that. Yeah. Kind of lie. And getting back to the pictures, though, you're you're saying that you're 100 percent certain not one of those is Johnny. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was going through family pictures and my brother, Johnny, I, I, Kevin Bozo, we all had the same haircut. It was like so unimaginable. They just cut it right across, straight across the bangs, yeah. halfway across the year. I mean, I showed you that picture of me. I mean, there's pictures of Johnny with that haircut yeah. in his Boy Scout uniform. And I mean, I, we all looked the same. I don't know. My mom said the FBI or somebody said that they were trying to get my brother. She said the FBI thought there was a pedophile ring and that they were going for my brother. Who knows? Yeah. And then they they found pictures or something. This is, well, that's like ooh, spook, gross, scary. So and then I told you about Fred at the at Valley West Mall. Yeah. I would I would go up to Valley West Mall on my bike, and you know, that's what everybody did. There was the arcade, the Fun Factory up at Valley West Mall, and right around the corner, my friends were like, "Hey, this guy gives us money. Go see movies." It's like, "Let's go see ET." So mm-hmm. we went over, and the guy gave us money. Like, wow, that was great. Then he, you know, he did it like a couple more times. And then he was like, hey, why don't you come over? He had these kids that lived with him that were like 13 or 14. And it's like, why don't you come over and hang out? We'll play games. Then one time he called my house. And my mom was like, and I was like, tell him I'm not here. No, she was like, who was that? And I was like, I I don't ever want to talk to that guy. And so I kind of stopped going up to the mall. And then my friend who introduced me said that, I, this was later, I went back to the mall and I saw the piano door closed. And he, my friend said that his mom had got concerned. I don't know if it was her directly, but he had got arrested for some kind of pedophilia ring thing or something. So okay. I called the West Des Moines police and asked them about it. And they said, unless you have a case number, they can't find anything back that far. So I, I did want to ask about Fred, too. Like, you thought maybe there was a pedophile ring going on in West Des Moines or like maybe he was involved with it like could do you think that do you think maybe I mean could he have been involved in something like this I mean I have always wondered about that I mean to me that guy freaked me out and I always wondered he had these weird kids who lived with them and you know apparently got but it was like what if he was trying to come for me or my brother or somebody or you know who knows because my brother hung out at the everybody hung out at the mall i don't think he would have been easily tricked i think he had a, it had to be some kind of confidence scheme or get him to come to help you where he's 
totally just untaken unaware. So we have yeah. to, yeah, I mean, I think you have to do something, hit him over the head or get him, incapacitate him. And I don't know how one person does that. There's one person, they get, they got to get creative. So Ted Bundy, like he took the passenger seat out of his car. He's got crutches and books and that whacked him over the head with a wrench and threw him in the car, tied him up. When they would start waking up, he'd whack them again until he got them to, you know, these people are mobile. They love their cars. They love the road. Bundy traveled all over Utah, Colorado. I mean, you know, who knows so, how far he could have traveled. So really, I guess it, um, a, a car wouldn't have to blow through a stop sign or and go speeding down 42nd Street because if they did something like that, get him incapacitated, they could very very calmly and normally just sort of turn the corner and drive down the street and just make as if it is just a normal car driving down the street then. Right, like, you know, signs of the lamps. Yeah. Once that guy gets, gets her in the van, boom, he, doesn't, he can sit there all day. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing, right? That's that's what you do. I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, when you're thinking about trying to get something, that's what your mind goes after. You can get pretty creative and coming up with ways to get what you want so i mean i have no idea what they used but whatever it is it was very good and very effective because they did it with eugene martin and probably with another kid so Mm -hmm. yeah so uh, i guess um i guess that's about all my questions i guess the main thing that really really um stood out to me with your first email is just the fact that they got the route totally wrong. That, that, I mean, no matter where he went on any other day, that's definitely not the route that Johnny walked on that morning. You, he didn't go up to Ashworth or 42nd. Like, you saw him walk on Marcourt towards 42nd Street. Yeah, I mean, everybody started your, the, your, your route about the same time because the guy would come if you're too early. You're sitting there waiting for the paper, so... He kind of knew what time the paper guy came to drop off the papers and what time your customers expected to get them. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I I saw that. I didn't understand why. And, you know, my, my, yeah, that's just not, not in my memory. I saw Johnny on the corner of. Yeah, yeah, like you. The corner of Forty Second Marcourt. Yeah, because you you lived on Marcourt and you saw him walk past your driveway towards the corner of Forty Second. Um, yes. Yeah, and um, and you're saying, and you said that there's no way his he could have gone to pick up his papers at Ashworth Road. His papers were always at Forty Second and Marcourt. That's from my memory, and then I confirmed that I asked Kevin, and he said Kevin said we passed Johnny. At Marcourt, and then they went. That's the last time they saw him. Kevin and Mark Bozen walked from Marcourt down to Ashworth along 42nd, along the church side. They got their papers. They okay. came back, and they saw they were they probably were the first people to see Johnny's wagon. Okay. Because they they came back and they you know and said his wagon was sitting there, and then they went and did their routes. I think. Okay, so so really, whatever happened, what like whatever happened, it probably happened just a, a minute or so after after you passed them and after the bosons first passed them. Like you know, that car could have been driving right behind you and your dad or something. You know. Well, I mean, I think you know it was probably. I mean, it was, to get to the corner, it might take you know two two minutes. Yeah. For, for when we saw him, which means we would have turned the corner, we would have gone down to the corner of 
42nd Woodland, and we would have pulled our car over there and been getting our, you know, we would stop, get our papers ready, because, well, you know, we drove on the, we got all our papers ready there, because then my dad would drive us, and he'd hand us three papers, and we'd run into his apartment complex, and, you know, throw down however many papers. It was like, you went into this apartment complex and went down, or you go up. So we were just like, boom, boom, boom. So we sat there for probably five minutes at that corner getting our papers ready for the route. Okay. But then, you know, he could have, they probably, they could have rolled right past us, and yeah. we would have never known, or we didn't notice if yeah. they did. Because he went somewhere. They either went, the only way to go was 40 seconds towards us, 40 seconds towards the Bozen or down Marquardt. So either passed us going to get Johnny or they passed us after they got him. They either passed me or the Bozens wow. on 42nd. Or okay. if they came up Marquardt, then they could have turned around and gone back the same way. But I think, you know, that would have taken more time and would have been more conspicuous. Yeah. Wow. That's, that. I mean, this is really kind of... Um, amazing information i think this is this is actually um kind of a bombshell because this is not the story that anybody seems to recall and you're telling me that you saw him walking down marcourt so that's that's kind of amazing now this conversation i had with chris was eye-opening there was not one paper drop location for the whole neighborhood as we've all thought for so long at 42nd and ashworth there were multiple and Johnny's was located at 42nd and Marcourt, the same spot that he disappeared from. That means Johnny was never on Ashworth Road, and he never walked down 42nd Street. So who did John Rossi see talking to a man in a Ford Fairmont? It couldn't have been Johnny. And how do we now explain the man who was seen walking out from between two houses? Nobody has anything to gain from making up these accounts. I posed this question to a few listeners that I was in touch with about this, and I asked, could this all be one big Mandela effect? What I would like to do now is talk to some other actual witnesses. I would love to talk to PJ Smith or the Bozen brothers. I'm also going to keep looking for more people who knew Wilbur Milhouse and can corroborate Yellowbag's claim that after Johnny disappeared, Milhouse would say things like, nothing would have happened if he just kept his mouth shut. I'm going to ask everyone listening to please share this podcast. Faded Out is available on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, Play anywhere you get your podcasts. Please feel free to get in touch with me. I do read every email and message that is sent my way. Some just take a little longer to get back to than others, but I will respond as promptly as I can. That email is fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. Faded Out is also on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. You can also request to join our closed group where we talk details of the case. That group is called Followers of Faded Out. I'll be back next week with episode 17. Many of you have sent me links to newspaper articles regarding the case, and that is what I will be going through the next time. Maybe we can piece these clippings together and find a credible timeline. As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. Thank you for joining me for episode 16. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time.